Welcome to Echoing Faith Today, a podcast conversation on themes of impact and relevance in the Directory for Catechesis, published by the Vatican Dicastery for Evangelization. I'm Dr. Jem Sullivan, host and faculty in the School of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. On this podcast, we hear from theologians and scholars, as well as those serving on the front lines of pastoral ministry. So welcome, and thank you for taking your place at this table of conversation. The Directory for Catechesis describes seven sources of catechesis in the New Evangelization, and one of those sources is theology. As the Church prepares to celebrate a jubilee year in 2025, Pope Francis has invited the faithful to return to the four constitutions of the Second Vatican Council, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, and the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. To help us explore key theological themes in these four constitutions of Vatican II, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Monsignor Paul McPartland renowned theologian and the Carl J. Peter Professor of Systematic Theology and Ecumenism at the Catholic University of America. Monsignor McPartland is a priest of the Archdiocese of Westminster in the UK and has served for two terms on the International Theological Commission. Since 2005, Monsignor McPartland has served as a member of the International Commission for Theological Dialogue between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and has participated in the International Anglican Roman Catholic and Roman Catholic Methodist Dialogues. Monsignor McPartland, thank you so much for taking the time to guide us through key theological themes in the four constitutions of the Second Vatican Council. I know this is a busy time of the semester, so I'm very grateful for your time and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Before we turn to the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, I thought we might begin with the event of the Second Vatican Council itself. And so a first question we might ask is, why does the Second Vatican Council continue to be relevant some 60 years after it began on October 11th, 1962? Thank you very much for that important question because we are celebrating the the anniversary at the moment and As you said in the introduction, Pope Francis wants us to focus on the four constitutions. So clearly he has a very strong sense that this uh, council and these documents in particular have enormous relevance. And I think there I would recall what Pope John Paul said in uh, 2001, because as we crossed over into the new millennium, he uh, um, published a, a wonderful document called Novo Millennio Ineunte. And in that document, he said that he regarded the council as the great grace bestowed on the church in the 20th century. And he said there in the council's documents, which, of course, we must read and understand and study very carefully. But there, and he used a lovely image, we find a sure compass with which to find our bearings in the new century that's now beginning. In other words, 
he had a, a, a very broad historical overview, you might say, whereby he understood that the Second Vatican Council, which was celebrated towards the end of the, of the 20th century, towards the end of the second millennium, was indeed God's providential way of preparing the church to make that great transition into the third millennium. And so he thought that it was full of potential, full of enormous uh, riches and gifts from God himself to the church, which we were going to need and which we would gradually discover, if you like, the full utility of. And, and I often think, therefore, you know, with that idea of, of the Second Vatican Council as a gift to the church, that it's like, you know, any gift that's given to us, if it's a very special gift, it's wrapped up, if you think of a Christmas present. And then, of course, we have to unwrap the gift and discover what's inside. And I think that you could say that we are still unwrapping this precious gift from God himself to the church. And, you know, the the um, the council is is full of potential for uh, helping the church to navigate uh, its ongoing task. And um, one of the the leading cardinals at the council, Cardinal Sunans, he was actually asked by Pope John, who called the council, um, just to prepare a, a kind of plan for the council. And uh, Cardinal Sunan said that really the council was all about one question. He said the whole of the council can really be thought of as addressing one question. How is the church of today responding to our Saviour's last command? Go out to the whole world and proclaim the good news. He said the Second Vatican Council is really the opportunity that we have, a very solemn and important opportunity to see how we're doing with that, with those words of Jesus ringing in our ears, because the world had changed enormously um, by the end of the 20th century. And so, you know, the two world wars in the 20th century within the church itself, so much renewal, actually, of an awareness of patristic sources, biblical sources, liturgical sources, great new riches were, were available. And I think that uh, Pope John wanted the church really to take stock of all of the resources it had, but also of a very needy world, you might say, and to realize that the church's task is to proclaim the good news and we can never be complacent. We must always be aware of the world in which we're living, the questions that it has, and really check that we are speaking in a, a comprehensible way to that world so as to bring the unchanging good news. Yes, it's an unchanging message, but in a way that people of today can actually understand. And Pope John really set that out in his opening address on the 11th of October of 1962. He said, you know, the church's doctrine is, a, is an unchanging treasure. But what is very important is to realize that the way in which it is presented can and must change according to the needs of the time. And so we have to have a great pastoral awareness, he said. And I, 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 I think it's very important to understand what he meant by pastoral, because people sometimes, sometimes rather underplay Vatican uh, II. They say, oh, it was only, and I'm deliberately using that little word only, because that's the implication when they say this, it was only a pastoral council. 
and as if in contrast to being a seriously doctrinal council. And I think that's a complete misunderstanding of what Pope John meant when he talked about a pastoral council, because being pastoral, I think we should say, is not just about the application of doctrine, as it were. It's about the authenticity of doctrine, because Jesus himself is the pastor. He is the good shepherd. All of Christian doctrine should be pastoral. It's all meant to be good news for real people in the real world so that they can find real meaning for their lives. So Vatican II was truly a pastoral council and at one and the same time an intensely doctrinal council. We might say it was developing the church's doctrine in a pastoral key as good news for the people of today. And so, you know, the, the, the council put us on that wavelength, if you like. We must really be aware of our mission in the world today. And when you think that, you know, Pope Francis's first uh, great document was Evangelii Gaudium about mission, he was picking up exactly the, the, the tone and the priority that the Second Vatican Council had. Thank you so much, Monsignor, for giving us those very concrete, helpful images of a compass, a gift and a treasure. We tend to think of this event as something that happened in the distant past, but in fact, it's relevant for today because it's precisely guiding the church of today in answering that fundamental question that you raised, um, uh, how are we proclaiming the gospel today? And I have to say that that struck me as well because that's something that uh, in catechesis and the new evangelization is at the forefront of how are we doing catechesis today is all about how are we in fact uh, being faithful to the Lord's command to go make disciples of all nations, um, that, that great commission. So thank you for just framing uh, our, our sort of going return to the council with those uh, good images. Um, you know, Pope Francis again has invited the church to return to the teachings of the four constitutions in preparation for the Jubilee 2025. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners, you know, why is it important to read the four constitutions as a unity? Well, the, the, the council actually produced 16 documents in all of different kinds, but four of them have this very solemn title of constitution. And the very word makes you realize that these are key documents. These are, if you like, the pillars of the council's teaching, these four constitutions. And the remarkable thing is that they do fit into a very tight unity with one another. They form, if you like, the, the, the basic um, scaffolding of the whole council. They, 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 they give the architecture of the whole council. And it's very remarkable um, the ways in which they interlock. And I, I, I would really say that the key to the, the way that they interlock is actually their focus upon the person of Jesus Christ himself. Again, if you sort of cut to the heart of each of these documents, um, they are all addressing Jesus Christ himself. Surely, you know, we would all say instantly, the very center of our faith, the one who, who is uh, the, the very focal point of everything we want to say, the one we want to bring to the world and encourage the world to, to know. And so it's all about Jesus. And those four constitutions, perhaps I could just 
uh, run through them briefly, but uh, there is the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, de verbum, um, which basically says that Jesus Christ himself is the sum total of revelation. You know, we think of the relationship between scripture and tradition, and we get into all sorts of, uh, of fine details, but the, the council wants us to realize that before there's ever scripture or tradition, there is the person of Jesus, whom God the Father sent, and Jesus said, to have seen me is to have seen the Father. And so revelation is fundamentally personal. It's Jesus himself. And then if you think of the, the great document on the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, the title means, you know, the light of the nations. And we might think, oh, that's a document on the church. Presumably it says, you know, the church is the light of the nations. And well, yes, I mean, Jesus did say to his disciples, you are the light of the world. But that document starts by saying that really it is Jesus himself who is the light of the world. And the purpose of the church is to transmit his light, you might say. And that's, that's the way we should start any reflection on the church. The light of the world is Jesus himself, and the church exists to spread and transmit his light. And the, the measure of our health as the church is how effectively are we transmitting his light into the world. And then you, uh, in the, um, the uh, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which is uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which was actually the first of the constitutions uh, promulgated by the Council. Again, we might think, well, liturgy is all the sum total of our prayers and our worship and our services. But again, Sacrosanctum Concilium goes to the very heart of what's happening and says that liturgy is fundamentally the great privilege that the church has in being united with Jesus himself as he gives himself to the Father in his sacrifice on the cross, as he lifts up his own prayer and praise to the Father, the church is the body of Christ and liturgy is the body of Christ at prayer. And so the church has the great privilege of being joined with Jesus so that we can move towards the Father, as we say in every mass, through him and with him and in him. So liturgy is fundamentally the church joining in the prayer and the praise and the sacrifice of Jesus himself. And once again, he is at the very center. And then finally, the, the, um, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, really says, and this, this is a, a, a most uh, wonderful uh, emphasis, and it says that really human life is a riddle. And there is only one person who can unlock that riddle, and that's Jesus himself. And if you, it, it, very interestingly, the section 21 of Gaudium et Spes finishes with that famous line from St. Augustine. You have made us Lord for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And as we look at the world, how surely we can see so many restless hearts wondering what's the purpose of life? What are we made for? What does the future hold? What's it all about? And then just after saying that in Gaudium et Spes 21, then Gaudium et Spes 22 makes the great statement that it is only in the mystery of the word made flesh, namely Jesus himself, that the mystery of man becomes clear. That in revealing the Father to us, Jesus reveals us to ourselves. And so every human being needs to find Jesus, if you like. 
he is the one who will give us direction. We're back to the idea of the compass again. We And the church's task is, to, and Pope John Paul himself said this in his first encyclical letter, Redemptor Hominis, he says the church has one sole aim, namely that Jesus Christ may walk the path of life with every human being. In other words, once again, the church's task is to enable that personal encounter between Jesus himself and the people of today. That's our mission, so that the people of today can find light and purpose and direction for their lives and for their own journey. Thank you, Monsignor. You've really given us kind of the unifying principle by which we are to read all of the council itself, uh, but also these four constitutions that are so important. And I couldn't help but think that that's exactly what the directory for catechesis brings us back to, this new directory, the third of its kind, is the Christocentricity of catechesis, that the whole mission of the church's catechetical and uh, efforts at evangelization is to bring uh, the those who seek truth, goodness, beauty in the world to bring them to Jesus Christ. And so uh, it seems like even our, our current catechetical documents are drawing on this central theme, this unifying principle of the council, which is this encounter with the Lord Jesus as, as um, through the various lenses. Um, let's look, as you said, uh, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, was the first conciliar document to be promulgated on December 4th, 1963. Um, why did the bishops begin with liturgy? Well, it's very providential, isn't it, that um, that, that document was in fact the first one promulgated because, of course, the church's first task is to give praise and glory to God. But how did it happen that way? I mean, it wasn't directly intended that this was going to be the first document promulgated. It was a providential outcome. I think we can say because during the first session of the council, the council had four sessions, as they're called, in the, in the fall of 1962 and then 63, 64 and 65. But, you know, in the fall of 1962, when the, the bishops gathered in Rome in October, um, there was a, a, a lot of unhappiness among the bishops because they had been given draft texts that had been prepared in Rome. And a lot of them came and thought these texts were a bit outdated. They needed improving. Many in the Curia were rather unhappy that the Pope had called a council. They thought this was a great, you know, unnecessary activity let's just present these documents and hopefully the bishops will come and just rubber stamp them and then go home and it'll all be over by Christmas. Well, the bishops, when they gathered in Rome, for many of these documents, looked at them and said, we're not just going to rubber stamp these documents. These are old fashioned documents. These aren't up to date. These aren't making uh, use of all the latest resources that we have. These aren't really attuned to the, the needs of the church today. And so, in fact, <laughs> a lot of the draft documents were rejected in that first session. The draft that was not rejected was the draft document on the liturgy, because over the previous 60 years or so, there had actually been very close collaboration between the liturgical movement, which had developed in the church at large, and the papacy and Rome and the Vatican, so that in fact they, they were on the same wavelength. 
There might have been, if you like, a gap in dealing with other subjects. The document on the church, for instance, took a great deal of redrafting and redrafting. The document on Revelation took an immense amount of redrafting. But this document on the liturgy was in a very good shape at the start of the council. Because after all, you know, the liturgical movement itself um, was, was in many ways prompted by one of the popes, Pope uh, Pius X in 1903, when he himself said, uh, and it was actually in a document about church music, but he uh, enunciated that famous principle that the active participation of the faithful in the liturgy of the church is the very best way in order to acquire the, the true Christian spirit. So that phrase active participation actually came from Pope Pius X. And the liturgical movement then kind of sprang into existence. I mean, it had had some beginnings in the 19th century at Solem with uh, Prosper Guéranger, Benedictine monastery in France. But really the, the modern, uh, modern liturgical movement really sprang up in the, the, the first decade of the 20th century with another Benedictine, Lambert Baudouin, a, a Belgian, uh, Benedictine, who was enormously industrious, but he really took this idea of active participation and really tried to promote the, um, the, the, the familiarity of the faithful with the liturgy, producing, for instance, you know, missals that would have the Latin on one side and then the vernacular on the other side so that people could actually understand more fully what the liturgy was saying, what the prayers were, to try and get them engaged with the liturgy and a whole multitude of initiatives, actually. And then in the late 1940s, Pope Pius XII actually produced an encyclical on the liturgy called Mediator Dei in 1947, when he himself commended the liturgical movement. And just a year later, in 1948, he formed a commission for liturgical reform, which began to look at the church's liturgy and actually begin some reforms, especially, for instance, with the, the Holy Week liturgy. And those reforms were rolled out in the 1950s. And so you can see that the, the liturgical movement at large, with so many people at work in the church, um, promoting that greater interest and engagement with the liturgy, was actually very much in tune with what the popes themselves were teaching, what the Vatican was doing. And so, you know, at the start of the council, um, the document on the liturgy was actually in very good shape. It was very up-to-date, it was very well put together, and it didn't take the bishops long to approve it. And it, as it happened then, uh, as I said, in fact, surely very providentially, the first document to come from the council was the document on the Holy Liturgy, because the very first thing we do as Christians is to praise God. And so it's really that primacy of worship, isn't it? That 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 the church is, the church comes together at the Eucharist, but is made church really uh, by the liturgical action. I was so struck by that historical perspective that you've given us, uh, Monsignor McPartland, because it helps us see that the council just doesn't come out of nowhere, uh, but in fact is sort of the fruit, a ripening of a fruit that was was uh, sown. The seeds were sown 
uh, some 60, 70 years before the council even began. And so that historical perspective is so important for us as we begin to return to these teachings of the council to realize that they were really in continuity with what was happening in the church for some time, for decades, leading up to the council. So thank you for that historical perspective. It really helps us to, reminds us that in reading the council, we have to look at it uh, in terms of continuity. Um, going a little bit further then, what key theological principles in Sacrosanctum Concilium would you highlight for further study in a return to the teachings of this document of Vatican II? Well, I think that the, um, the core of the document's teaching is really to be found um, quite early in the text. And I would highlight, you know, there are the numbered sections of this document, like all the documents of the council. And section number seven is enormously significant because we find there really that core idea that I mentioned a moment ago, that liturgy is actually the prayer of the body of Christ. It is the, uh, the most wonderful grace and privilege that the church has of being united with Jesus Christ, the head of the body, in his prayer, his sacrifice of himself to God the Father. And so, you know, it, the, that uh, section of the document says that liturgy is, is properly understood as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. And he unites the church with himself in his own act of self-giving, self-sacrificing to his father in, you know, infinite love and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the liturgy is. And um, it, it tells us that um, in the liturgy, Jesus Christ himself is present in multiple ways, that he is present in the, the sacraments, he's, he's present in the uh, transformed elements of bread and wine into his body and blood, but he is also present in the proclamation of the word. And this was actually an enrichment of what the church had said previously, even an enrichment of what Pius XII had said previously in 1947. The council said that yes, Jesus Christ is present when the word is proclaimed in the liturgy, because he is really the one who's doing the proclaiming. This is his good news. And so, you know, the word itself has a very special capacity to nourish us and to feed us. And of course, he's also present in the minister who's presiding. He's present among the people because he said, where two or three are gathered, there am I. So in other words, we should be very conscious of the presence of Jesus himself, drawing us to himself and uniting us with himself and drawing us into his own self-gift to his father. This is the, the absolutely powerful and wonderful core of what liturgy is. Um, the, the document talks about the Paschal mystery because we really, when we think of what Jesus uh, did for us, we mustn't just think of him dying, but him rising and ascending into heaven. And as St. Paul said in his teaching on the body of Christ, Jesus has united us with himself in all of that movement. We have died with Christ in baptism. We have been raised with him. We have even been lifted up to a place in heaven with him. And so, you know, St. Paul says to the Christians who are still living their life on earth, of course, he says, keep your eyes fixed on heaven as well, because really that's where your true life is now. And so the, this document of the council 
focuses us on the fullness of that paschal mystery of Jesus. We've been grafted into that paschal mystery. And, um, you know, it, it, somebody once said that, um, that previously, of course, Catholics have always gone to Mass and, you know, always been very prayerful at Mass. But somebody put it rather, I think, uh, succinctly like this, that prior to the liturgical reform uh, of, of Vatican II, people prayed at Mass, but they didn't necessarily pray the Mass itself. And I think that is a, a very interesting uh, distinction to make because the, the council very much stressed that the liturgy is the body of Christ at prayer. It is that, that uh, it is a prayer in which everyone has a role to play. And so that, of course, is what active participation means. It doesn't mean necessarily running around and doing lots of things. It means actually joining mind and heart in the prayer of the body of Christ united with its head in the liturgy so that we know what's happening we know what we're doing and um and we're really joining ourselves and our lives and and joining our own sacrifice to the one sacrifice of Christ and bringing the whole world and all of our cares and all of the things we're trying to do in a way in and through the faithful who come to the liturgy the whole world is brought to the liturgy and we join what the scriptures the the, the first letter of saint peter he talks about offering our spiritual sacrifices to god because we are a priestly people and we should do that through jesus christ and really that is the priestly heart of the liturgy because the people are a priestly people this is another one of the great doctrines uh, doctrines of Vatican II, more expressly laid out in Lumen Gentium, but the people are a priestly people, so that yes, you have the ordained priesthood active in the liturgy, and that's absolutely crucial, but the ordained priesthood exists in the midst of a priestly people, and so everyone is exercising their own proper priesthood in the Mass. The faithful are bringing the sacrifices of their own lives, to unite with the one sacrifice of Christ at the altar, which is made present through the action of the ordained priest. And so this idea of a priestly community joining with Christ the priest, the active participation of all the faithful, these are the kind of fundamental um, uh, elements of this great document. And of course, then it, it, it mentions that for instance, in, uh, in number 36 of the document, it actually says that, you know, the Latin language is certainly to be preserved, but let's realize that the vernacular has a very important use because if we're wanting people to engage with the liturgy, they can do so so much more easily when they actually understand exactly in their own language what's being said. And this isn't, you know, some revolutionary idea. In the early church, the, the liturgy wasn't in Latin at first. It was in all sorts of other languages that the people spoke. Then it was put into Latin in, the, in about the fourth century because that was the language that most of the people spoke. And then, of course, you know, rather a long time after, 1500 years later, the church applies the same principle because by then in the 1960s, not many people at all could understand all of the Latin with any facility. So put the liturgy into the vernacular. That's always been the church's desire so that people could understand and participate. 
And um, and then also perhaps just a final little point, but you know, this document talks about the nourishment that the faithful receive in the liturgy from two tables. And this is a rather nice idea from certainly the table of um, the of the Eucharist, the table of the Lord's body, as it says, we receive the body and blood of Christ at the, at the altar. But it also talks about the nourishment we receive from the table of God's word. And that, again, makes us realize, you know, the importance of realizing that Jesus is speaking to us in the proclamation of the word and the task of the preacher, if you like, after the liturgy of the word is is to to break the word so that it can be food for the people, just as a short while later he breaks the bread so that that can be food for the people also. And so the nourishment from the table of the word is another very interesting idea in this document. Thank you, Monsignor. Those key themes that you've identified uh, for us from this document really help us to see that, uh, that that sense of active participation is really participation in what God is doing as we are doing our prayer and our worship and, uh, you know, thanksgiving to God. Uh, it really is we are participating in what God is doing in our midst and what uh, all of the ways in which you uh, these themes here help us to really participate in that that work of God that continues in Jesus Christ so thank you so much for these really excellent ways of kind of angles with which we can enter this document um, whether it's the the priestly office the paschal mystery um, and and this the sense of the table of God's word the riches of the table of God's word and the table of the Eucharist, all of that helping the faithful to really enter fully into this mystery of what God is doing, has done in Jesus Christ and continues to do. So again, this, this document really helps us to understand how we can fully participate uh, so that we are in fact going out then into the world with that uh, presence of Christ. So thank you for those excellent uh, reflections um, in terms of themes, key themes of the document. Um, you know, you've talked about the relevance. We began with the relevance of the event of the council, uh, the Christocentric uh, theme that runs through all of the 16 documents, but especially these four constitutions. You gave us a historical perspective on the council itself. Uh, and then this uh, document, which allows us to see, uh, read these documents kind of with a hermeneutic of continuity, as some theologians uh, refer to that. Uh, and then some key themes um, in this particular text. Um, uh, and we hope this conversation really inspires our listeners to return to the text and read these rich documents. Um, as we conclude then, are there any other points you'd like to highlight from this Constitution of Vatican II or just the event of the Council? Thank you. There, 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 there are a few things that I, I would like to uh, just add there, if I may. Um, one of the, 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 the points is actually in a phrase you, you just used, um, that, that idea of the hermeneutic that we apply to the council, because Pope uh, Benedict in 2005 addressed this very important question of, you know, how, how should we interpret the council's documents? And this is what we mean, you know, by hermeneutics. How, how do we go about interpreting? And he contrasted two different hermeneutics. He said some people um, think that, you know, the Second Vatican Council was a rupture 
with everything that went before and a great discontinuity. And he said, you know, this is simply not tenable because the Holy Spirit is guiding the church through all of its history. And there, there, there just cannot be some kind of massive rupture whereby everything that went before really doesn't count anymore and we just start afresh. So that we must rule out. But interestingly, um, over against that hermeneutic of discontinuity, he actually proposed what he very carefully called a hermeneutic of reform in continuity. And I think that th there's a lovely picture that I, I once saw of the young Joseph Ratzinger in the early 1960s standing alongside Yves Congar, who was a famous uh, Dominican friar who had a huge influence on the council's documents, drafting and preparing and so many things. And um, in 1950, Yves Congar produced a, doc, uh, a very important book in French called Vraie et Fausse Reforme dans l'Église, True and False Reform in the Church. And he, he, was, he wrote it because he said, reform has a bad um, uh, echo in the Catholic Church, a, a bad sort of reputation, because people think of the Reformation and they think of division and reform is something that causes problems. And he said, that's quite wrong. Bad reform causes problems, but true reform is what the church always needs. And the church mustn't get stuck. And this was, of course, you know, something he was feeling very much. Was the church getting stuck in the 1950s? Interestingly, it is known from, from people who were visiting the future Pope John, who at that time was the, the nuncio in Paris. Somebody called on him one day and discovered him reading Congar's book. And we, it becomes then a matter for speculation, of course. But I think it is likely that that book had an influence on Pope John, realizing that reform, healthy reform, is something that the church needs. And that's what the council was called for, to reform the church so as to do its work today effectively. So reform in itself isn't a bad thing. Bad reform is a bad thing. And so, you know, Pope Benedict was very much picking that up. The, the true way to see the council is as a true reform in continuity. But the church is always renewing its life with the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I think that's extremely helpful um, from, from Pope Benedict. A, a hermeneutic of reform in continuity. And... Um, and I think with, with regard to this, this document, maybe just a, um, a, a, a further thought on, on uh, the, the uh, constitution on the liturgy, what I think is very obvious right from the start is how closely um, this document ties the liturgy to the church. In other words, it, it, is, it presents the liturgy as the church at prayer, as I, as I just said, but also it makes it quite clear that the church is basically to be understood, not as an institution. The church is the body of Christ. It's an organism. And the church lives most intensely in the liturgy. The church is primarily a liturgical community. And the liturgy is an ecclesial action. And so there are all kinds of echoes between and parallels 
between the constitution on the sacred liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, and the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium. Both of those documents talk about the liturgy and especially the Eucharist and the Eucharistic sacrifice as the source and the summit of the life of the church, both of them. Both of them speak of the church itself as a sacrament, a sacrament of unity, a sacrament of salvation. Uh, both of those documents talk about the priestly community, which joins in the liturgy as a priestly community. Both of those documents uh, help us to see and, and really um, instruct us to see the bishop not primarily as an administrative figure in the church, but primarily as the first minister of the church, the high priest, to use a very ancient liturgical expression. The episcopate is the high priesthood of the church, and Jesus is the one high priest, as we know. So the bishop is the icon of Christ, the high priest amongst his people. And so, you know, they, we must think of the bishop himself as primarily a liturgical figure, preaching the word, gathering the people, nourishing them at the table of the Lord's word and the table of the Eucharist, and then sending them out refreshed and into the world. And um, because I think, you know, when we think of that idea of the Eucharist or the liturgy as the source and the summit of the church's life, there's a kind of double movement there, if you think of it. The summit means we gather into the liturgy. It's the summit of the church's life. But then it's also the source. We are sent out again from the liturgy into the world. And I often think that, you know, we speak of gathering for the liturgy when we do. Of course we do. But it's very important that at the end of the liturgy, we're sent out. And, you know, the sending out at the end of the mass in Latin is ite missar est. Now, the fact is that that dismissal has given the celebration the name that Catholics normally use, the Mass. So it, it can't just be incidental. It seems as if it's very important for the meaning of the whole celebration. And so we gather in order then to be nourished, refreshed, and then sent out again. We gather and we go. We gather and we go. And it's almost as if the liturgy is the very heartbeat of the church. We gather for the liturgy so that we can be instructed, forgiven, refreshed, renewed, fed, and then sent out again on mission. And so, you know, the liturgy is therefore, as the, that, that image we used before, the very dynamo at the center of the church's life. It's the very heartbeat of a living church. And I think that tie up at the council between so many things it says in its document on the liturgy and so many things it says in its document, the dogmatic constitution on the church, is enormously instructive. Thank you, Monsignor. And you know, these themes that you've um, explored with us um, are really profound. 
to in, in understanding uh, not only this document, but as you pointed out now, uh, the, its connection to other documents. So it's a wonderful preview that you've given us of the connection of this document to the dogmatic constitution on the church, which we look forward to uh, in, in a future podcast conversation uh, exploring. I, I was really struck by that, what you said about reform, that the church always stands in need of reform, yes, but the reform is always for the sake of fidelity to Jesus's command. So it's not just, uh, you know, a reconstituting of what we have to do, the agenda for today, but it's really to go back to the Lord's command. It brings us back again to that, where we, where you started our conversation today, uh, which is Jesus's command to go make disciples of all nations. And it's fidelity to that, that call uh, that the church then lives uh, in this, in this uh, constant need of renewal and reform. So thank you for that reminder that that's really at the heart of what this uh, constitution this, uh, and, and the council itself was all about. Uh, so Monsignor McPartland, you've given us much to reflect on today. I know our audience is grateful to hear your insights. So thank you for exploring with us the ongoing relevance of Vatican II and its first document, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. I'm very grateful for your time and look forward to continuing these reflections as we explore the other three constitutions of Vatican II. So thank you very much for being with us today. It's a great pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me. And I, I too look forward to our future conversations. I hope this conversation has helped your understanding of the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. Be sure to join us as we continue reflecting on the Council's four constitutions. I'm Dr. Jem Sullivan, and I thank you for joining this podcast. Keep the faith and keep echoing the faith.